The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. In March 1984, miners across Britain walked out of the pits and didn't go back. What followed was one of the longest, largest and most acrimonious strikes in British history, as miners stayed out of work to fight for the survival of their livelihoods and communities. Based on more than 140 interviews with former miners and their families and supporters, historian Robert Gilday's new book, Backbone of a Nation charts the story of the strike through their eyes. I spoke to him to find out more. Your book, Backbone of a Nation, charts the story of the 1984-5 miners' strike. You call the miners' strike an era-defining moment in modern British history. What do you think makes it so? Well, the miners' strike of 84-85 was the last great industrial battle if you like, fought on British soil. I mean, the interesting thing is there's now a new battle. I mean, the the Labour movement has come back in Britain in the last year or so, and there's been a lot of strike action. But for a long time, there was very little strike action, basically because Mrs Thatcher, who was Prime Minister at the time, decided to take on the Miners' Union, which was incredibly powerful, represented about 200,000 miners. It was very well organised, They had fought for better wages and better pay and better conditions. They had brought down the Edward Heath government in 1974. And so the Tory government, when it came to power in 1979, already had a power to smash the miners' union. And the bid to smash the union went on for a a whole year because the miners resisted for a whole year. They resisted on the picket lines and in the streets, and demonstrations, and they also had an amazing network of support groups, mainly organised by miners' wives, and they also had a great deal of support from outside activists. The strike was not about pay, it was about a plan to close the pits. The closure of the pits was, I mean, it was probably going to happen anyway, but it was, it was, it was sped up and rushed through in order to provoke the miners into strike action. Um, and so they were fighting to defend their jobs, they were fighting to defend their pits, fighting to defend their communities. They had a famous slogan, close a pit, kill a community. And when the strike was lost, uh, pit closures followed very rapidly, first of all straight away in, in, in the mid-80s, and then there was another wave of pit closures in the early 90s. And I think the last pit in Britain closed in uh, 2015. It's a defining moment, not only because it was the destruction of 
the labour movement because other unions were also smashed in their wake and weakened in their wake. But it was also the end of industrial Britain. The pit communities closed. There was very little employment. And a lot of these mining areas in South Wales, in the Midlands, in the north and in Scotland were devastated. And that that basically led to a lot of deprivation, a lot of ill health. And it was also one of the factors that explains the Brexit vote in 2016. Well, I might return to that at the end of this conversation when I'd like to ask you a bit about the legacy of the miners' strike. Your book really, I guess, is a view from the ground. It's based on more than 140 interviews with miners who took part in the strike and also the people that supported them. So it's these perspectives that are really foregrounded here rather than, for example, police or politicians. Can you outline your approach a bit for us there and tell us about the perspective that you were coming from in telling this story? Well, I wanted to write what you might call a bottom-up story of the miners' strike. So people people say, oh, what about Arthur Scargill? Did you interview Arthur Scargill? Well, I didn't interview Arthur Scargill, but I interviewed his wife, which was actually a lot more interesting. I, I went into each of six mining areas. What I wanted to do was to interview about 25 people in each of the coal fields. Miners, miners' wives, miners' children, and in some case, grandchildren. I also interviewed quite a lot of people who'd supported the strike in different areas, such as London. And the plan was to do what's called the life history interview. So the interview average lasts about two hours, and you start with somebody's childhood, their family of origin, their education, their schooling when they left school. And what miners often say is, you know, I finished school on the Friday and on the Monday I was down the pit. Well, it's a bit more complicated than that because actually they received quite a lot of training because it was a very dangerous occupation. And then you trace what happened during the strike, the picketing, uh, the support groups, their antagonism with the police, the Battle of Orgreave, which was obviously at the centre of the dispute, the way the police were sent into the coalfields, the way the strike crumbled at the end, the return to work. And then I asked them about what happened to them after that, what happened to them in terms of employment, did they find other work? Some of them, particularly miners' wives, went back to college and got an education and did other things. Some of them went into politics. Some of them had a very, very bad time because some miners were not only jobless, but they were blacklisted because of they'd been arrested during the strike for picketing. They were sacked, they were blacklisted, and some of them never worked again. One guy, Scottish guy, took him 10 years to find a job, and that was just cleaning in the supermarket. Obviously, this was a hugely divisive issue at the time, but the people that were involved in this, how did they reflect on it all this time afterwards? Are they still like emotionally charged talking about this? In a sense, it was the centre of their lives. And, you know, some people say, well, with oral history, well, the trouble with oral history is that people forget things. Well, if you've been traumatised and beaten up and lost your job or your wife's left or your children are without jobs and get a drug habit, you know, you don't kind of forget that kind of stuff. So... The the interviews are actually, they can be quite emotional. I've had people in tears. I've been in tears myself. These are people who were incredibly brave, had incredible courage and resilience, and they also had amazing organisation skills. A couple of months into the strike, they realised they were in for the long haul. So they set up these groups to raise funds, to organise food soup kitchens, to organise food parcels, to collect money. So the, in a sense, the strike was at the centre of their lives and everything happened that happened since then was affected by it. And I'll just give you the example of one old South Yorkshire miner who was indeed blacklisted and never worked again and had bad health. And I interviewed him with his wife and one of his sons. And 
And the son said to him, you know, Dad, the thing is, you're still trapped in the strike. 40 years later, you are still trapped in the strike. And he said, too right. That is it. I am trapped in the strike. That is what's defined my whole life. The book is called Backbone of a Nation, but it also strikes me that really mining was the backbone of these communities. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about how integral the mines were to the communities, as you say, the slogan, close a pit, kill a community. Well, I mean, they were absolutely central because for a long time, Britain was what's called a single fuel economy. And the Scottish miner who came up with this expression, he said, uh, you know, my father told me that miners were the backbone of a nation. He said, you know, without coal, there was no energy for the factories. There was no fuel. The economy was simply run on coal until, you know, they brought in, you know, North Sea oil and Middle Eastern oil and nuclear power. For 200 years until getting towards the end of the 20th century, coal was at the centre of the national economy and the mines supported other industries. The railway industry, the steel industry, the shipping industry were all you know, very closely connected with the coal industry on a national scale. And obviously, locally, the whole you know, local economies depended on these people having their jobs and having an income and spending their money. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit Apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. And so when it came to going on strike, how would you characterise the attitude of most miners? Were they feeling optimistic? Were they feeling pessimistic? Were they fairly united or did people have doubts? Well, the first thing to say was that it wasn't really a national strike as such. It was a strike that was triggered from coalfield to coalfield. But there was another way of organising a strike, which was a national ballot. And national ballots on strike action had been held in the past. But it was also clear that some coal fields, particularly in the Midlands and particularly the Nottinghamshire coal field, which was much more modern, where there was a less, uh, less heritage of mining and people had high wages, they were very reluctant to go on strike and they didn't go on strike and... One of their reasons was, well, you haven't had a national ballot, so we're not going to go on strike. But the effect of that was that miners from, from Wales and particularly miners from Yorkshire crossed into Nottinghamshire to picket these people out, to try to stop them from going to work. And so there was a battle. You know, the miners' strike was a battle with the government and a battle with the police force, which was sent in to, to break up the strike and to break up pickets. But it was also a battle among the miners themselves, and in particular to try to stop the people in the Nottinghamshire coalfield from going to work. In a sense, the strike was flawed from the beginning because the miners were not united. But it picked up momentum 
And it really kept going until the autumn and winter of 84, 85. And then at that point, people who had been on strike had really had enough. They were exhausted. They were tired. They were hungry. People started to drift back to work. But obviously, the people who were still out on the strike would try and, again, blockade pits and to try and stop these people getting back into work. And did those actions go beyond picketing? Were there attempts to, you know, ostracise people who wanted to go back to work? Yes, I mean, there were divisions in the community and there were also divisions in families. I mean, you know, some people I interviewed said, well, my husband was out on strike, but my brother wasn't. And, you know, we didn't speak to my brother for 30 years after that. And there is this horrible word, scab. This is what miners call a strike breaker. It's a terrible pejorative term, but it was supposed to be pejorative. And after the strike ended... You know, those people who had gone back to work were ostracised. Many of them had to leave their communities. And there are people to this day who will say, I will never speak to that person again, because when I see him wandering around the village, I, I know about his, you know, what he did during the strike. And quite often they say, and his father and grandfather, you know, were scabs in 1926 during the general strike. So, you know, we know about them. It goes back a long time. You alluded to the hardships of the autumn and winter of 1984 to 1985. Just how dire did things get for families in these communities? They had no money coming in. There was no wage. Sometimes the women were working. And obviously, as I say, there was this huge effort to raise money. And women in particular would speak to, to trade unions, to council meetings, to rallies in order to raise money. And towards the end of the strike, miners were going abroad to France or to Germany or Denmark or Sweden, you know, to try and get money internationally. But again, the government cut down on benefits, tried to make sure they had no benefits. The only benefit they had was, was child benefit, which I think was £14 a week. Sometimes families, you know, their parents helped out or their cousins helped out. Some miners took to poaching. The other thing they lost was a coal allowance. I mean, each mining family had an allowance of coal from the coal pool, which they used to, you know, heat their houses. So they, they'd lost that. So a lot of miners started to, you know, to rummage around on the slag heaps and try to get coal that way. Some of them went into poaching. Some of them did, you know, decorating jobs. But basically, it was really, really tough. And I mean, there's, there was one miner who said, oh, I went back to work in November because my daughter was coming up to one year old and she was shivering with cold. And I thought, I can't stand it any longer. I'm going to have to go back to work to be my daughter. You mentioned other groups that offered financial support and other types of support to the mining communities. One of the most notable instances of that is lesbians and gays support the miners, which some people might be familiar with from the film Pride. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the real story there. Well, miners were very keen on establishing connections a lot of miners went to Dublin or to Belfast or to, to Liverpool. But again, a lot of miners you know, went to London because London was where all the money was, where a lot of the trade union headquarters were. And the South Wales miners made a connection with the gay movement. And basically, one of the miners made contact with these people and raised the money. And then the miners also, when they'd raised money in a community or raised money from a trade union or a or an organisation, they wanted to invite these people back. So, well, thank you for the money, but now come back to our village, our mining village, to see what we're doing with it and meet the people and see how they're struggling. So there was a visitation by a group of, of these gays and lesbians to the South Wales Valley. And this is the bit that's told in the film where there was this moment because, you know, the South Wales miners were very conservative and probably quite homophobic and obviously not used to these, you know, flamboyant young men in very different gear with you know with short hair and dance with the miners wives but the miners 
themselves did not dance. I mean, one of my guys says, Welsh men don't dance. <laughs> and so there was this moment when it looked as though it wasn't going to work out. But then, you know, they got on like a house on fire. And a lot of money was raised by groups like lesbians and gays support the miners, but also by the printers unions and civil service unions and other people, you know, a lot of left-wing people, Trotskyists and so on, went into these places to find work and then to, at the same time to help the miners. Mm. Something you've alluded to a few times in our conversation is the role of women and female family members, particularly wives. How integral were they in sustaining the strike for as long as it lasted? Well, they were absolutely integral because when you think about the miners, you know, they, they weren't working. They were kind of losing the battle on the picket line and the women were starting to do their own thing. And there was a kind of blow to their masculinity. But at the same time that there was the blow to the masculinity of the miners, the women came into their own. Now, some of the women had already had jobs, but a lot of these women were, were housewives. The miners' wage was a family wage. It, it was supposed to support a family, and it did. But as I say, some of them had other jobs working in shops or working in the post office or some one or two working in the civil service or as teachers. But these women came into their own as organisers. And, for example, in South Wales, in the Julius Valley, they would raise money and organise food parcels on an almost industrial scale. So each mining family would receive a parcel of food every week and, and they would send them out to, you know, a dozen villages or a score of villages every Friday. A lot of these women who, you know, came into their own as organisers and as public speakers and supporting their men, very often they also went onto the picket line because when the men got arrested... They were bound over to keep the peace. They couldn't do any more picketing. So the women, you know, stepped up and went on the picket line as well. And the interesting thing is, as I say, after the strike, a lot of the men were in dire straits, but a lot of the women, you find, they don't less school at 15 or 16. I mean, the women, you know, they go back, they go to college, they go to university, they qualify as things like probation officers or social workers or teachers. And they basically give back to the community. They spend the rest of their lives repairing the mining communities which have been devastated by the strike. So they go into professions, partly for themselves, but partly also to give back to the community and try to make these communities decent places to live in again. This question of the politicisation of women is really interesting. I wonder how much that applies to communities as a whole and miners. If you went to the Welsh Valleys or South Yorkshire, as you say, and you chatted to the first few miners you met, how engaged were they with the big political landscapes at play here, this kind of Thatcher versus Scargill battle? Or how much were they kind of just involved in local politics and what their mates and their comrades were doing? I think the miners were quite politicised. I mean, for example, if you go up to Durham, the headquarters of the miners' union is a place called Red Hills, which was built in the early 20th century, I think about around about 1910. And it's a very impressive building. And they've currently got national lottery money to basically completely redo it and make it into a sort of museum and cultural and historical centre. But the idea there was that they were going to build this trade union building to say, well, we're equal with the coal owners. They may live in big offices, but we live in a big office as well. They were at the forefront of the labour movement. They were quite politicised. They had brought down the Tory government in 1974. Edward Heath had gone to the country and his question to the country was, who rules Britain? And the answer was, the miners ruled Britain because he was out. And, and that's why, you know, Mrs Thatcher 
wanted to take an axe to the the miners and there was the plan in 1977 while they were still out of power bearing the name of Nicholas Ridley one of her ministers and the Ridley plan was basically the blueprint of how they were going to defeat the miners how they were going to bring in coal from abroad have these huge stockpiles of coal and they were going to reorganize the police force to make sure the police force was much more centralized than it ever had been before in order to to defeat the miners and the law was changed in order to make picketing more difficult and so you know because they were at the forefront of the labor movement they were i think heavily politicized well i do want to ask you about picket lines and confrontations with the police how hostile did things get the purpose of the picket line was to stop working miners going to work i mean basically They needed a united front of striking miners. If they didn't have a united front of striking miners, the strike would fail. And in the end, it did fail. And I have spoken to working miners in Nottinghamshire, and they are very angry about what they call the invasion of miners from Yorkshire over their border into Nottinghamshire to try and force them out of work. So the picketing movement was an attempt to keep miners out of work. But the aim of the police was to stop the picketing miners getting into Nottinghamshire. And some of the stories you hear is that we couldn't get into Nottinghamshire. We tried to picket in Nottinghamshire, but it was a police blockade. It was like a police state. We couldn't even get in there. So we went to picket in Staffordshire or Leicestershire or somewhere else where the police presence was not as great. The other big point of confrontation was in the summer, basically from the August, where the government said, right, we're going to get a few people back to work in every pit And to begin with, we'll just need one or two workers and we'll shepherd them into work. And then obviously the the miners will turn up to try and stop them getting to work. And when they turn up to picket and to make a fuss, we'll arrest them and then we'll send them to court and then we'll bind them or put them in prison or we'll get them sacked from their jobs. So there's a chapter which I call The State of Siege, which is about the police occupation of mining villages in Yorkshire and up in Scotland where basically the the whole force of the police was used to intimidate the miners, to occupy the villages and to force a minority of miners back to work in order to break the strike. So, yes, there was a huge amount of confrontation. And a pivotal moment that we do need to talk about is the so-called Battle of Orgreave. From the interviews that you conducted, which of course are from the miners' perspective, what did you piece together about events from that day? Well, Orgreave, as you know, was an attempt to, to do a mass picket of a coke works between Sheffield and Rotherham. And this was going to be the master plan of Arthur Scargill. And Arthur Scargill had built his reputation in 1972 when there had been a mass picket of the Saltley Coke Works in the Manchester area. And that had been a success. And the mass picket had been a success and the coal board had to climb down and the government had to climb down. And so this was going to be another Saltley 12 years later. Unfortunately, it all went painfully wrong because miners turned up from all over the country. I've interviewed miners from South Wales, from Scotland, as well as from Yorkshire and, and County Durham who went to Orgreave for this mass picket. And they were surprised. They were initially surprised because normally the police would try and keep them out to stop them getting to a picket. But here were the police saying, this way, this way, park up here, you know, park up there, you know, have a bit of a picnic. And so it, it started off as a bit of a picnic and it was a very sunny day. And then Suddenly, you know, the confrontation started. And if you look at pictures of Orgreave, I mean, it looks like a medieval battle. On the one hand, you've got the picketing miners in T-shirts and jeans. And on the other hand, you've got these heavily armoured police. Some of them are on horseback. And not only do they charge the picket lines, but when the miners start to flee, they chase them through the local 
villages. And, you know, this has been captured in many films since, but it was a kind of pitch battle. What were the responses to Orgreave? The police response, the public response? Well, what you have to remember about the public response is that the press, you know, was the Tory press. So there was a whole propaganda war that was going on. Mrs Thatcher famously called the miners the enemy within. I mean, she had just defeated the enemy without, which was the the Argentinians in the Falklands War, and now she was going to set about the enemy within. So when you think about the way in which people talk about trade unions and picket lines and striking workers now, then it was probably 10 times worse. And so these miners were demonised. And of course, Arthur Scargill himself was a controversial figure. Not all miners thought that Scargill was the bee's knees. He was quite controversial. His policy at Orgreave of a mass picket was questioned in some circles. So it was it was a big propaganda war. I'd like to move on now to how things unravelled with the strike. Can you tell us about how it came to an end and the response to that from mining communities? Was there a sense of despair and loss or was there, among some causes, a sense of relief? Miners talked about their coal fields being solid. You know, our coal field is solid and we've got 98% of our miners are still out. The Welsh miners were very proud of their, their coalfield being solid. In Scotland, the strike seemed to end a bit earlier. Ditto, there were problems in Yorkshire. Durham had held out pretty well. But as time went on through the winter, you know, through Christmas, I mean, Christmas, was, Christmas and the New Year were important turning points. I mean, Christmas was the time in which they celebrated the fact that they'd been out for 10 months and there was a lot to celebrate. And But a lot of Christmas presents arrived from, you know, places like France and Germany. And in County Durham, they had a woman who was coordinating the, the support movement, it had what she called a toy and turkey project. And so each child in County Durham was going to get a toy and each family was going to get a turkey. And, you know, so it was a big moment. But after that, and particularly with the new year, people were just losing heart and running out of money and running out of morale. And so the drift back started. And then some of the miners' leaders, particularly in South Wales and in County Durham, thought, well, we need to go back to work in an orderly way. Rather than the whole thing just to kind of descend into chaos, we need to make a decision as a miners' union to go back to work. And there was a meeting in London at the TUC on, I think, the 1st of March, 1st or 2nd of March, 1985. And the decision was made by a very small majority to go back to work. Now, some people were relieved. Other people were not relieved. Other miners thought that they'd been a sellout. There were also some people in South Wales who thought, again, that the strike should have gone on. The miners' leaders should have kept going. And the more younger, radical miners and their wives said, we should have kept on fighting. But there was this return to the, the pits in the sort of first week of March 85. And there are famous pictures of, you know, miners walking behind their banners and sometimes the brass band as they go back to work, you know, pretending that it was a victory. You know, they, they had their heads held high. They were defeated, but their heads were held high. But other miners thought, well, what, you know, what, what is this? You know, we were defeated. You know, there's nothing to be proud about. And in a way, the fight has to go on. And of course, once they went back to work, the battle between the striking miners and the working miners went on. And the striking miners were told, if you call the working miners scabs or anything like that, you're out. You know, you've lost your job. So the management was putting huge pressure on striking miners to get back into work and to behave themselves. But in a way, that kind of civil war between strikers and non-strikers went on underground. 
and and in the villages and pubs, you know, well after the strike. So this is something you alluded to right at the beginning of our conversation, but just to ask you for a bit more depth, what was the impact of this long-term on mining communities? Well, the impact was that the pits shut, as I say, in, in two phases, one in the 1980s, immediately after the strike, and then and there was another phase in 1992. And again, there were demonstrations and pit occupations. I mean, um, Anne Scargill famously was one of a, a bunch of women who occupied, who went down a pit and, and occupied it in 1992 to try and stop the pit closure. But it meant the end of jobs. I mean, some miners got moved to other areas. By the 1990s, the remaining pits were privatised and safety conditions were not very good and there were quite nasty accidents and then you know, the last bit closed. So miners were faced with, you know, what do I do? And a lot of them went into, you know, factory work, but, you know, going from factory to factory and a lot of the time the factories were owned by multinationals and they get closed and reopened and renamed. And so they were going from job to job. Sometimes they had several jobs a week in different places. Some of them went to work for the council. One or two went back into education and some of them even became academics. But as I say, it was the women who thought, well, what, what are we going to do? We've been politicised. We've been, in a sense, become feminists, working class feminists. And we've also got to support the family. Now we are equipped to support the family. And actually, if you meet some of these mining families, you could see straight away when you walk into the room, it's the women. It's the women who are strong. And the men sometimes look like shadows of men, you know? They won't thank me for saying that, but the women really came out of it strong. And, and as I say, they went back into work and community activity. But, I mean, having said that, these areas were devastated. And when I went up to Scotland, one of the things they said to me is that if you look at the destruction in these areas, the worst areas for unemployment, for deprivation, for ill health, for drug use are former mining areas. And that message has gone down from the miners to their children, to their grandchildren, and the blight is considerable. And so would you say that the legacy of the miners' strike still resonates today, 40 years on? It does, but in my book I talk about ruin and redemption. And on the one hand, you do have the ruin of these mining communities and the blighting of people's lives. And when you think about it, the mining occupation had gone from father to son, from father to son, and then suddenly there was nothing for the sons. So there's a whole generation of young men who have not, had no work to go to. So that's the ruin side. But the redemption side is the fact that they did go back into education, become professional people, and got involved in politics, local politics. Some of them even became MPs. And one of my favourite stories is a daughter of a mining family in County Durham who became a GP. And she's now a GP. She did her training in these devastated mining villages. She saw her two grandfathers die of miners' lung diseases. And she's dedicated her life to try and make things better as a GP in these devastated communities. What I was keen to do, and you mentioned the fact there are very large quotes in this book. Sometimes the quotes go on for several lines. And I think I was very keen to tell the story of the miners and the mining families with their own voices. So their own story with their own voices and not to kind of talk over them. You know, there are some historians who do the what I call historian as God. 
You know, so the historian knows everything and the historian will tell you the story of whatever it was from A to Z. And, you know, Professor Bloggs knows best. But I think what I was trying to do is to say, OK, well, I'm a facilitator. I'm like a scribe. I'm going to listen to these people, record them and then sort of weave them into a story. But the story with their lives. And I think they've really appreciated them because what I, you know, I, I learned a huge amount. Of them. I learned you know, I'm not, I haven't got, I haven't even got a working class background, but in a sense, I was writing, this was a political project. You know, mm. Mrs. Thatcher called them the enemy within. I'm calling them the backbone of the nation. There's a political message there. So, you know, wake up, listen to the message. What they were doing then, people are now trying to do now. And that maybe the lesson of the minor strike from 40 years ago can be a lesson for how to do it today. That was Robert Gilday. His book, Backbone of a Nation, Mining Communities and the Great Strike of 1984-5, is published by Yale. If you're interested in finding out more on the history of industrial action, including a brief history of strike action and an article exploring when school children went on strike in 1911, then head to our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.